Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. is episode 462 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Ross Pribolski of D20 Games and asked them about the design and development of their roguelike tactical RPG, Abalon. I discovered this game at Seattle Indie Expo, which is running during PAX West, as it always does. Remarkable title. Very clean. There's no ambiguities about it there's no fuzziness everything's cleanly presented and traced you can really see what affects what and that's something we really delve into when we're chatting about creation of Avalon I'm really impressed by it and because of that it doesn't undermine it. it doesn't really mean that all you see is the code which is a problem with video games generally when all you can see is the interactions with Avalon, that's an advantage. You want to see the interactions. You want to see how everything works together in order to be successful. And that was really something quite revelatory to me. And I asked Ross why this came about, how it came about. And uh, it's an interesting tale, to say the least. So without further ado, let us listen to me for the relatively recent past Talk to Ross about the making of Abalon. Hello, Ross. Hello. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Ross Shabilsky. I am the founder of D20 Studios and the creator of Abalon, a fantasy roguelike that combines turn-based tactics and deck building. Oh, does it. And sleeplessness. <laughs> and squirrel hurling. Yeah, oh, squirrel hurling. Poor little font mites. They do run away, though, bless them, generally speaking. But uh, before we delve into that kind of thing, let's find out a little bit more about you, Ross. How did you make your start making video games? Sure. So I got started in 2006 designing board games, actually. So my background's actually in the tabletop. And what inspired my work was I had a weekly game group. We'd get together every Friday. We play all kinds of tabletop games like uh, Magic, Warhammer, D&D, Chess, Hero Quest, a whole bunch of different games like that. And we wanted to find, um, we realized as we were getting older and having full-time jobs, it became harder to all get together to play those things. They take a lot of time. There's a lot of rules. And so my goal was to try to kind of combine different elements we liked into a shorter, faster board game. Uh, but Publishing board games back then was difficult because Kickstarter hadn't taken off yet, and there wasn't a whole lot of ways to get funding. 
So a friend of mine had encouraged me to use my programming skills, and I was working um, in e-learning development at the time, uh, building stuff in Adobe Flash to create a, a browser game of it so that we could play together online. And so that's kind of what kicked things off. I spent uh, about a good year or so creating that, and then we would beta test it with uh, my friends and one of my friends, like World of Warcraft guilds. They would play it between raids, which is pretty cool. From there, I um, you know, developed the, the, the full game. Here Mage is my first title. And that was a cross-platform mobile game for browser and web. And then I took uh, a break in between indie developing, actually, to work at Electronic Arts. So I was there for about four years as an engineer manager and then producer. And then I decided, you know, my passion is in indie games. I really want to go back and, you know, fulfill this big vision I had for this card tactics game and decided to go full-time on Avalon. So I've been doing that ever since for the past uh, seven years now. And we thank you for it. uh, Let's move on to the next question is, what are your biggest influences? Well, (laughs) maybe I sound like a repeat of the last answer, but yeah, tabletop games. um, Yeah, I would say Magic the Gathering was definitely a huge one. Um, Warhammer tabletop, any kind of miniature-based tactics game. Like I said, we played a lot of the HeroQuest board game. Uh, I also was really big into RTS. So um, Warcraft was a huge one, Starcraft, Dawn of War, anything that was like commanding armies, using strategy to outwit your opponents. Chess is another big one uh, that I played a lot growing up and that, you know, the elegance of it really is what I, what I like about chess, how it's just, you know, mind to mind and it has all the nice movements and it's just super well organized and, and easy to pick up, but difficult to master, of course. Our next question, then. Here we go. What video game developer do you admire most and why? So I'm going to say Daniel Cook of Spry Fox and the Lost Garden blog. Um, when I was first getting started into actually producing digital video games, um, his blog was just a huge inspiration for, for two reasons, really. The first one was that it made it feel possible that I could actually make a living doing this. Uh, because of the time he was developing Flash-based games and working with, you know, his his creative to kind of develop these and, and explore ideas for how to, to essentially monetize them. Because a lot of the Flash games at the time were all free browser-based. But he was one of the first to say, look, this can actually be a, a, you know, a business that you can make a living doing and here's how you can do it. And so that was one of the huge things. Um, the other thing I really like, though, is just how he just really dissects and, and goes into design theory and strives to create just a better overall experience. Like, is this the best we can do as developers? Like, here's here's some ways we should explore and look at this differently to create something that's a good experience for the player. Um, and I really like that. Um, I, that, that. That kind of goal and way of looking at it to me is, is really, it's inspirational. You know, like, I, I like to think that when I create games, um, I'm doing it because I enjoy the process of making people happy, having good experiences, bring them together and, you know, enjoying themselves. It's, it's a, it's a career I can feel just proud of, you know, I'm bringing good to the world. So yeah, I like that. So last question of the first half, what are you playing right now? All right. So my top game right now is a party based council game called night squad by Chainsawsome games, another indie developer. And the reason I love it is because I've got two kids, um, a 11-year-old, soon-to-be-12 son, 
and a 10 year old daughter and my wife and we like to game together and so this is one of those great games that we can all plop on the couch in the middle of an afternoon and spend an hour we'd like to team up and battle each other pretty fun it'll be usually me and my daughter versus my son and my wife it's a ton of fun it's um if you're not familiar with the game it's a top-down um, action game where you each play a different colored knight and have to engage in various game modes like capture the flag or soccer or my absolute favorite is the crystal rush where you're having to use a lot of strategy to um, destroy the other team's crystals using drills. And so like one person has to be dedicated just destroying the, the crystals and the other folks need to be gathering weapons to try and thwart the team. So I really like that. It's, it's super fun. Um, I like games that I can just kind of pick up and play without a lot of thought or investment. Um, of course, I do like those kind of games too. Um, so the, the other games after, aside from Night Squad, which is the one I'm mostly playing now, um, had recently finished the Witcher 3 series. Uh, absolutely excellent, phenomenal story. My wife really enjoyed uh, watching me play as well. And uh, Diablo 4. So, okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on then, shall we? To the second half right. of the show where we delve deep into Apple. First question. It's really a question. It's a request. Could you tell us, in your own words, Ross, what is Avalon? So Avalon is a card tactics game that is delivered in the form of a roguelike adventure. So you are essentially the guide of a parallel universe, and the characters of this world look up to you literally <laughs> to guide them in their adventure by commanding them, issuing orders in battle. And along the way, you get to lead your summoner on a quest to recruit additional party members to your team, gather cards to build a custom deck that will represent your spells, summons, weapons, and you have to defeat powerful bosses in each of many different biomes to progress and fulfill your destiny of saving the world. I think that's a reasonable summation of things. But just Thank to break you. it down a little bit further, to give you a bit more detail, so the context of the following questions are reasonably well understood by the audience. The play area, arena, so to speak, is a square grid, not a hex grid. Don't get excited. <laughs> and um, and it's a square grid, and your character takes up one of these spaces. In fact, all beings, regardless of size, take up one square. Yes, and um, they are they are identified and represented by, like I said, completely top down. And they occasionally, when you click on them, uh, they look up at you expectantly, waiting for guidance uh, from okay. you to say, "What shall I do now?" Then, um, and it's it's a wonderful little, little quip. But one of the core components is that there are cards that you can. Can, not must, 
can play. And these cards can do all sorts of things, everything from summoning a great walking tree to a squirrel, an armored squirrel, for example, if you're playing a druid. That's the, the default sort of um, create the character, um, sort of player character you can take on, uh, especially in the tutorial. That's why I'm giving that as an example. There are others that you unlock and experience. I'm not going to delve into those for fear of spoiling that experience. But yes, let's just focus on the, 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 the one you initially have, which is playing as a druid. And it's a, it's a, a turn base. It's a very strict turn base. You have a set of actions, uh, a number of actions you can commit, but each character, each being under your control, has actions as well. So the action economy is not limited to the player character, but all the things they spawn as well. And indeed, they can happen in any order. There's no, the initiative is still based on all you and the friendly players, and then you flip over to them, the enemies. It's no, you know, there's not a fragmented sort of, oh, well, that character's in that initiative order and that initiative. And, that, and that's fine, and it works really well for other games. But um, it's interesting, and I, I can see why, that Abalon doesn't have that system. Uh, because of the nature of play, it would break it up. It would make it somewhat confusing to the point where it would actually lead to some situations which are profoundly unfair. Uh, the game would be broken. So that's the setup, everyone, so everyone understands the system. Now, there's a resource, many resources, actually, in Abalon. And I find that really interesting because you're constantly monitoring them both consciously and unconsciously. One of them is mana, which you generate over time. Another is, oddly enough, marshmallows. We'll come on to that in a second. <laughs> and then there's also um, gems that you collect, which um, the more you collected these gems, the more underpowered or diminished the big bosses at the end of a particular level or dungeon. Fantastic idea. There's also a health of the character and then your other other beings that you have summoned before you. What I am really intrigued by, and this is a very blunt way I've written, I've, I'm sort of paraphrasing my question here, but in Abalon, all these resources are managed and it's a core component of the game, as I've explained already. Why? Why have the resources? Yeah, why, why have, have this plate-spinning experience where, by the way, everyone, the marshmallow thing, I didn't explain that, yeah. is where you sit down at a campfire, um, you know, restoring your health, having, you know, resting, you know, the, the classic RPG, you know, tr trope. You rest for eight hours. <laughs> you know, uh, I always found it utterly amusing in games like Wizardry and, and stuff like that, where you'd you'd be in the middle of a dungeon and go, "Oh, you rest for eight hours, and nothing molests you." Like this makes no <laughs> sense. That's right. That's right. It makes no yeah. sense. And and to those new to the genre, they just can't do this. Like it's fine. Nothing's going to eat your face off. But it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, just, but, just take a nap in the middle of this dark, creepy dungeon with skeletons walking around and orcs bellowing in the background. Yeah, it's, it's fine, all good. Just get a nice, fine. sleep, easy rest. You're fully yeah. for eight hours, and you're completely rehealed and stuff. And it's just like you know, everything's all your uh, all your ailments and the stuff. It's all gone. 
So why? Why have you done this? Why have you gone to this level of minutiae? To everything from resting to 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 get just there's so many different resources. Why have you adopted this this model? Excellent question. So to to answer that, to give some context, my original background making games was focused purely on the the battle itself, the the cards, tactic combination, and battling your opponent in singular matches. Um, when I created Avalon, what the inspiration was is that a lot of our players from our first game, Hero Mages, wanted to feel the experience of like a full campaign and going on adventures and connecting things together with um, you know, some kind of a story and things like that. And you know, I struggled initially with that. It's it's a very different kind of challenge creating a game that's purely like a multiplayer mind-to-mind type of match to creating something that is a single player experience because you have to have that sort of connective thread to bring these different elements together. So it doesn't just feel like you're doing battle after battle with no meaningful purpose or gain to it. And so um, that's sort of what struck the initial idea of connecting these maps together in sort of a grander scheme so that you wouldn't just be battling, but you would be exploring and feeling connected to the world and one of the aspects I always like about the idea of like in Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy type things is this notion of you're going on a journey, right? There's like a, a development where you're going on a journey, you're building a team, your team's getting larger, you're having to, you know, survive the harshness of the of the wilderness and things like that. And so having those different aspects um, sort of creates another layer on top of the purely tactical thing. So in addition to just you know, how you want to build your deck, how you want to battle in the, in the, in the fights, you've got to think about, okay, how do I actually keep my party alive long enough to make it to the end? And the campfire part was a big part of it. Um, I just, that's just one of those things I really enjoy in any kind of fantasy based game. It's sort of like the, uh, my wife actually has a good word for it. She calls it the, the green space the spot where you're just sort of walking around. It's a chance to clear your head after the intensity of thinking about the battle. And then you have that nice resting scene. We can imagine like, okay, my characters are here. They're all kind of gathered. That's where they share their stories and you're kind of, you know, regrouping and things like that. And so, yeah, the marshmallows was just a, another kind of funny way of making it our, our own spin. We have a lot of things like that, like the squirrel hurling. We thought, okay, well, what could be funny? Like they have marshmallows and to kind of add some color to that too. Um, all the characters that are resting will pick up a little stick and roast the marshmallows. So if you got like a bear on your team or a griffin, they'll have a little marshmallow stick too, and they're eating it. It's just like one of those little details we throw in there for humor. Um, but yeah, it, it's also another interesting thing about the resources. It's one of the more polarizing topics of our game's design. So I'm glad you asked it. Uh, a lot of players, for example, find the the choice we made with the cards themselves. So unlike most of the deck builders out right now where you sort of fight wholly with your deck. And after each battle, you, you know, in fact, after, even after you cycle through all the cards, you would reshuffle them back in and play all the cards again. In Avalon, the cards are a finite resource. You play the cards and then they go to your discard pile and then they cannot be used again until after you rest of the campsite. And this was done very much with intent to, to number one, distinguish us, but number two, because, there's a difference to how the mechanics all play together. When you've got things on the board that act as your economy and your resource that each have actions um, and you have cards that also do actions, um, you want to have a way to minimize the number of potential choices that you have to deal with at any given point so that the player doesn't become overloaded. 
Um, and a lot of this we had figured out through the process of player testing. So very early on in the game's experience, we had um, players from like the, our first game, Hero Mages, would, would test the very early builds and give us a lot of insights into sort of what things would work, what things wouldn't work, so that we could create the most you know, optimal experience that would be fun, have all the depth of you'd expect from a game like this, but be very laser focused to the point where it felt like it just flowed naturally. Like you didn't have to like, you know, scrutinize every decision you made. You could kind of compartmentalize the tactical decisions with the grand sort of meta decisions of how you survive with the resources. So does that help answer? I think so. And there's one resource we haven't spoken about is the D20 dice, but Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, we'll come back. No, no, no. I was deliberate. We'll come back to that later because it's that requires a new conversation. Yes, excellent. But yes, everyone, you do collect other permanent action cards like permanent buffs. You have cards that are temporary buffs that only work when they when you have an next engagement, then they fade. All that kind of stuff. But there's what? Yeah, D twenties lying around the map for reasons that we're going to go into. I want to talk about some of the cards now and their design and how they are played. So you have a mana resource which builds over time during the turn combat, and uh, you need a certain amount of mana in order to expend a player card. And these cards can do all sorts of things, from summoning armoured squirrels, why not, to embiggening, if you like, or enlarging armoured armoured. Uh, that's a, that's a favourite combo of mine. Uh, armored scarlet squirrel, which is now four times bigger than it normally is, and then yeah. starts monstering itself through wading wading into the enemy. It's very satisfying <laughs> seeing it's get again its vengeance on those who seek to destroy it. But there's one component that I find quite interesting in these cards because you can build your deck of cards. By the way, you have a maximum of twenty, and it's randomly drawn, and you can you know swap and change and optimize your deck with the the giant turtle that you rescue that's not a spoiler it actually happens at the end of the 15 minute tutorial which by the way is most excellent at teaching the game tutorials are very yeah it's 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 sincerely stated it's a very difficult thing to make tutorials and you did an excellent job um and the reward is the fact that you get the you know the space turtle so not space turtle, so that's a Terry Pratchett reference, but uh, <laughs> uh, if you, get, you get a cosmic turtle that helps you out with your deck. But point being, and here's the question: If I'm going to get to it, there's environmental components to these oh, yeah. cards. Certain things need to be present in order for them to be functioning, in order to work. Why? Another why question, Ross. But why? Yes. We wanted the environments to matter. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the specific cards I'm sure you're referring to is like the animate tree that requires a tree be present. And yeah, it, it's because it when you encounter those environments, it gives an additional layer that just, it gets you excited. Like, I, I love the idea that you can use the environment to your advantage in different ways. Like there's, um, I don't know, there's actually, a, there's a lot of abilities, even the ones that don't explicitly state it. You can knock people into traps. You can knock them into spike walls. So a lot of abilities are almost, um, if they're not directly um, requiring the environment, they are almost certainly enhanced by having environment there. And so, yeah, that's just a huge part of what makes the, I think, the, ex- the experience interesting. Um, now, 
you have situations, of course, where you're in a dungeon, trees don't grow, right? So we had to come up with a solution like, well, what would happen if a player takes a tree card, an anime tree, and they don't have trees? Is the card just sort of useless? And no, it's not. Um, every every card is can be used at any time, um, for the most part, unless they're like specifically like a heal card and you're not injured. Um, but what we do is we introduce the discard mechanic. So if a card can't be played because the environment's not present, you can discard the tree anime tree card, and then it just gives you a regular summon tree and card. So it's still playable, but it doesn't have the same additional tactical effect to it. So a lot of cards are like that where you have advantages. Um, the other part of that whole equation is the kind of call it the, the rock, paper, scissor element, where we wanted to make it so that given certain situations, um, the right card can turn the tide, even when that card itself may seem way weaker than whatever the opponent's currently fielding. And it creates these moments where you can be sort of in a dire straight position where you're about to lose. And then you're like, pull the right card. Like, ah, yes, the animate tree card. I don't just get to summon him, but I can literally deploy him on the back lines of the opponent and then use his crazy treant slap knockback to force him right to the front of the lines and give my guys a big combo attack. So it just, it creates moments of um, excitement and like, I don't know, I call it the the little brain thing that happens in your mind when you all of a sudden see the possibility, oh, I can do this now. And it just makes it more fun. It certainly does that. It certainly does that. uh, (laughs) No wonder it's in there. I'm trying to be very scientific. I'm like, I know I I, want to be as like descriptive about the answer as possible, but yeah, really it just, it's more fun. It's more fun, isn't it? It's more fun. fun. It just, it it requires the player to pay attention to what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, this isn't two spreadsheets smashed against each other, by the way. This is, you know, look at what you're going on. Think about, use the environment to your advantage. Yeah. Power stone all over again. Anyway, <laughs> deployment of guardians in Abalon. These are NPC people that join your party that you then get to control, at least guide their actions. Um, is to have a limited number. I believe it's three. And I've noticed one of the interesting things is that after an engagement, and assume they survived said engagement because they don't always. They come back after when you go you get your marshmallows out, and they can't mm-hmm. they can't stop themselves coming back. Clearly, these marshmallows are magical, but let's move on from them. Um, but their their health kind of this condition carries on from one engagement. To the next, it's not magically reset. There's no short resting in this game. No, it's uh, you just keep if you go if you plow on without you know because you have a limited what a number of campfires and marshmallows you can do to actually have any resting. Um, you know, let's keep going with, with the same condition they're in again. This is the theme to this. Why, <laughs> why, why was this? Decision taken that... um, I've got a nice, succinct answer to that question. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, so that choices matter. You want to have it so that the player feels like what they're doing has consequence, so that it it, it feels more impactful. When When you lose, it's because you made choices that led to that character being injured and weaker. If you've held them on the sideline, then... You know, or, or heal them, or taking chances to rest. Like it, it makes all those decisions throughout the game feel like they have weight to them. And and weight and challenge is what I think makes games interesting. 
and it feels like you're accomplishing something then when you can circumvent the perils that are thrown before you <laughs> to be able to survive that it it takes it takes a lot of skill and and thought and and that that's what makes things meaningful is is how you overcome those kinds of challenges yeah your decisions have consequences who knew you know <laughs> who knew that you'd model they mess around and find out <laughs> In 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 Avalon, but you have you have you have the last question. Then we're going to cycle back to our D twenties. When engaging in a, a new area, you encounter a creature, and sometimes you look at the situation. Indeed, the game will actually advise you. Maybe you should come back later. Maybe just say, or uh, you encounter some creature or scenario or thing that you have to engage with and there's going to be some change some variable some test and this is done by d20s no less not just the one although that's the default number that's the you know the minimum you can roll is one and so for example when you're going to a room everyone listeners you can do a retreat. In order to successfully retreat, one must successfully do a retreat roll. If you don't, you've got to stick around, and indeed, the monsters have a free attack. So there's a risk to that. But you can get more 20-20s as you roam around the dungeon. You get loads of them, you can just start pumping loads, and then the roll occurs, and then whatever's the highest number for all those dice, that's the number that's chosen. How did this come about? <laughs> well, we are D20 Studios, so there had to be D20s in the game somewhere. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first answer. <laughs> the, the second part, to delve more into it, we, we actually sincerely wanted a, I sincerely wanted a way to in, involve the D20. And in the first game, D20s directly influenced combat results. Um, I did not want Ambalon to have dice in combat because with the cards and the deck building and the characters on board, there was enough things going on already to complicate the mechanics of battle. And so I wanted to keep it strictly to just, you know, known damage quantities. You have a certain amount of damage, you know exactly how much they're going to deal and you can predict and kind of plan the moves. Um, But dice are fun. Um, They introduce that feeling of um, just random and and randomness. It's 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 a light way of introducing randomness in the game and giving a sense of, um, I like to play with fate versus free will. Like, is there a destiny? Is it controlled? Or is it up to the gods to determine that? There's a lot of those themes within Avalon, both within like the lore and the cards themselves, and then the the, the dice being a big part of it. Um, so yes, it, it, the dice produce random results, kind of like in Dungeons and Dragons. There's an excitement to, you know, I intend to do this, but just because I intend to do something doesn't mean that my actions will play out as planned and there's going to be repercussions that you then have to deal with. But you can influence that. And that's why the D20s are, in fact, a resource. So if you have a role, everything is usually based on a single D20 role. And if you want to increase your chances of that outcome succeeding, you can commit more resources to it. It's still not a guarantee. There's always an RNG where you could roll eight dice and you could fail. It's very, very slim if you roll that many, but it can happen. Um, and I think that that also adds tension to it. Like it's, it's the combination of tension, excitement, and the thrill of just what happens when you're going to roll those dice. It's just 
they're fun to roll. And it, it adds a nice little breakup too as well because all of your combat is very much driven by your choices and what you're doing. And like I said, that that creates a sense in the player where it becomes exhausting. If everything you had to do is a direct chess match, it would be exhausting to play the game for hours and hours. But when you have these little breaks between where you can kind of just explore, adventure, and it's like, oh, here's a cool choice. Um, I can roll a dice and let the dice decide my fate. But if I really care about the outcome, you can throw a few more dice into there. You certainly can. And I have done sometimes a little bit too much, forgetting that if only I was sitting behind a DM screen and all the rolls would be awesome because that's what happens. <laughs> oh, yeah, the players aren't going to like that one. Let's go ahead and make that. Oh, it's a natural 20. <laughs> oh, yeah, there it one. is. Oh, there it is. Um, <laughs> never mind. Oh, well, you know. That's right. Fail forward or indeed success forward, so to speak, but there it is. <laughs> I always say if you're rolling dice and you're fudging them, then why are you rolling them at all? Embrace the failures as well as successes. But, no, it's a wonderful inclusion. I'm happy that I asked about it. So, Abalon has been developed by D20 Studios. Now, normally at this point, I would ask why the studio name is called such. But I can think I can guess. <laughs> There's a cool story of that, too. So, cool, let's the- go for it. Let's tell us, Ross. Well, yeah. how, what did they come up with the name for this one? All right. So when I was designing the initial board game that sort of kicked this this whole thing off, um, which was uh, Hero Mages, and it was in physical tabletop form, um, the the most direct inspiration game was um, Hero Quest, which involved combat rolling dice. And I've said I like rolling dice, but it had a lot of dice rolling, and also Warhammer as well is the other big one. And you have multiple rolls. You roll to attack to see if you hit, then you roll to see if the Hit does actual damage based compared to like the toughness of the unit. And then you roll again to see if your armor saves. So that's like three dice rolls to determine combat. Um, and dice are fun, but when you have lots of dice and you play the game, and it takes hours because of just the dice rolling. I was thinking, okay, is there a way we can simplify this and, and capture all those stats into one? So the initial uh, board game used D20s instead of having multiple dice rolls to essentially take on the role of all those three dice rolls because with 20 outcomes, you can factor in both the hit, the damage and the armor by just comparing it to the direct number of the character's defense. And so the D 20s essentially became like a way of having dice rolls, but not letting them become overly cumbersome in terms of the gameplay time. It helps shorten the gameplay time to have just one roll. And so that sort of became like the iconic mechanic that I used to, um, that I felt like, you know, helped move the genre forward a little bit. And that's why it became sort of a centralized theme to the studio. And that's why the studio is called D20 Studios. Brilliant. That's a, why not? Why not name it after the very sort of uh, tenant or tenant that you actually are following or pillar? Yeah. That's another word. But um, no, I think people underestimate how complex probability is and how right. to actually model it to respect the likelihood of actually things occurring. And there's been lots and lots and lots of studies and books and texts written on this very subject, game theory, no less. And uh, some people really nailed it. Some people really, really haven't. But I'm not going to go ranting now on that. (laughs) But um, now, could you just confirm what platforms Abalon is available on, please? Yes, Abalon is currently available on Steam 
It is supported for Windows, for Mac. We also have native Linux, and it is also Steam Deck Verify. And we are currently working on the mobile release. So there is a beta for the mobile um, that's available in our Discord for anyone who currently has the Steam version. And uh, that will be on Android uh, phone and tablet and iOS, iPhone, and, and iPads as well. I believe that's the version I played at the Seattle Indie Expo. So it's definitely oh, yeah. using a tablet at the time. It's a wonderful interface. It's very, very intuitive. But I, that's the version I played there. But I actually played the full game on my PC, everyone. So I've got a mixture of both experiences there. Yeah. So, Ross, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Genuinely has. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Well, that's a pleasure. And uh, you're more than welcome to come back. Talk about what your, what your next game is, whatever it is cooking in your brain. I'm not going to know. You can't tell me. It's probably two or three years from now. That's fine. I can assure you we will be here. Until then, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canandrinse.com. <laughs> <laughs>